All right, it's good to see everyone today. I hope you've had a very blessed week so far in the Lord. I know many of you are still adjusting to a lot of things related to COVID-19, but we've been encouraged in the last week as some things will be opening up as we head through the next several weeks, and probably it'll be on into the summer before we get back to our regular routine. But in spite of all that's been going on around us, I hope that you are doing well, that you're staying healthy, and that you're finding encouragement through the scriptures. We know that even as the world around us can be so very overwhelming, we can find a peace that is beyond all human understanding when we turn to Christ, when we turn to our Heavenly Father in faith and we rest in Him. As we join together today, we'll be looking at chapter 13 of Matthew. I kind of set the stage last week when we were together giving you some background information related to parables. If you have the notes information that's downloadable from the website, maybe you've gone on Facebook and printed it that way. I know some of you have been getting that via email if you do not use Facebook. Please review that information, especially on the first page. It gives you a little more detailed information about parables, how they function, than what we really have time to get into uh, during our Wednesday sessions. As you're looking toward Matthew chapter 13, would you bow with me for a moment of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of this day, for this opportunity to be together with your people Lord, we know that these parables are some of the most well-known stories in Scripture, but they are also at the same time very challenging passages because they remind us of the nature of your kingdom, how your kingdom unfolds around us in very subtle and simple ways, and it blossoms, it blooms into a beautiful, beautiful plant that produces fruit. And the same can be said in our lives as your word takes root in us. Over time, as it is nurtured, it continues to grow stronger and stronger. It continues to produce the fruit that is becoming of your kingdom. Father, be with us in this time together. Let our hearts and minds be open and receptive from your word through the gift of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 13, as I set the stage last week, is a full parable passage or a full chapter of nothing more than parables, but it is yet another of the teaching sections of Matthew's gospel. So far, we've looked at two different teaching sections of Matthew, one being the longest, the Sermon on the Mount, and then we looked at that discourse, that teaching of Jesus as he prepared to send the disciples out to show them what they were to do as followers of Christ, but also to indicate the kind of challenges that they would inevitably face as they sought to do the kingdom's work. Here we find in a little bit different way of teaching Something that was very important not only for the disciples, something that would have been important for uh, the religious leaders of that day and time, but certainly for us today. When we think about what we mean by the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, so many times we're focused on that which takes place at the end of life once everything has reached its it's pinnacle, everything has come to a conclusion, and we find ourselves dwelling in heaven with our Heavenly Father. 
And while that is a component of the kingdom of God, that not yet component that's been prepared for us in the future, we have to also realize that the kingdom of God is something that we presently participate in, that we currently are a part of the work. We await the fulfillment whenever that may be, but we continue even in this life to see glimpses of God's kingdom and we participate in the work of that kingdom as it unfolds around us. And one of the key elements, one of the common threads from start to finish in Matthew 13 is how Jesus emphasized the unfolding of God's kingdom just as I prayed a moment ago, in those simple, subtle, unexpected ways. Now certainly we know that God does some extraordinary things. We know that he does some really amazing things that are overwhelming beyond anything that our human minds can comprehend. But one of the dangers is that as a people of faith, that can be where we dwell. We look for the, the big moments. We look for the explosion. We look for those powerful times in life where God's presence is obviously with us. But we find the reality is, while God may function in some huge mind-blowing ways, really God comes to us, God reveals himself to us, in the subtle things of life. A lot of times we're looking for the lightning bolts, the billboards along the side of the road, when in reality, if we would allow God to still our hearts and bring our focus a little bit closer to home, we would find that God reveals his power and his presence in ways that we, if we're honest, we take for granted. We think, well, that's just too simple. There's no way that that can be the nudge of God in my life. There's no way that this can be God encouraging me or using me to do anything spectacular for his kingdom. So we have to realize that it's the small things. It's the small things in life, whether it's the conversation we have with the stranger whether it's the phone call from a fellow church member out of the blue giving us not just a, a checking on us if we've been sick, but providing us with a word of encouragement, a prayer in that particular moment. God's kingdom unfolds in dramatic ways, and we have to be ready and receptive for when we experience God's kingdom in this life. Preparation is one of the key elements to the first part of Matthew 13. It's the parable that we've known for years and years from the time we were in our small Sunday school classes as the parable of the sower. And while I think that's a fair designation for this parable, we find that the parable is not so much about the sower as it is about the ground into which the seeds have been sown. In this story, we find that there's a little more to it. A lot of parables are pretty short and to the point. They're kind of in your face. They have a, a certain shock value to them. But with the parable of the sower and the parable of the wheat and the weeds later on in chapter 13, they're a little bit longer. They're a little bit more developed. And some people would say, well, yes, they're parables, but they kind of function like an allegory. An allegory is a story which makes a central point, but it's longer. It has more characters, more pieces and parts that work together, and each of those pieces and parts represents something. I think about one of the great examples of allegory 
would be John Bunyan's story of Pilgrim's Progress. It's a story of a certain pilgrim on the journey. He's trying to discover Christ. He's trying to discover faith. He bumps into a lot of shady characters along the way who try to trip him up. And ultimately, he makes his way to the celestial city, heaven, if you will, by the end of that story. It's a great story. It's one that I was familiarized with back in middle school, and it continues to serve as one of the great classics in the Christian faith. And so the parable of the sower and the parable of the wheat and the weeds function a little bit like that, where there's more than just one thing. There are a few things that are unfolding here. Join with me as we jump in at chapter 13, verse 1. It says, That same day Jesus went out of the house, and he sat beside the sea, and such great crowds gathered about him that he got into the boat, and he sat there while the whole crowd stood upon the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched since they had no root, and they withered away. Other seeds, they fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. But other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty-fold. Let anyone with ears listen. It's important that we jump down and we find Jesus' interpretation of that parable at verse 18, and then we'll come back and discuss it a little bit more. Verse 18 says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. This is what was sown upon the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet such a person has no root, but endures only for a while. And when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, that person immediately falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but then the cares of the world and the lure of wealth choke the word, and it yields nothing. But as for what was sown on the good soil... This is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. It's unusual for Jesus to offer interpretation on parables. Most of the time he, he tells them we sort of get the clue, the big idea of what's going on in those parables, and then we move along in our study of Scripture. But we find that there are going to be interpretations given for both the parable of the sower and the parable of the wheat and the weeds. As I mentioned a moment ago, the parable of the sower is how we've come to know it, but I think it would be safe to call it almost the parable of the soils because the focus is not so much on the farmer 
a lot of people get caught up, well, why in the world was he sowing this way? We have to remember that we did not have all of the precision tilling practices in the first century that farmers are now accustomed to today. But if we get too caught up in the farmer and why was some of the seed going here and there and yonder, we sort of miss the point that Jesus was getting at. The focus of the story is one on the seed, which as he points out in his interpretation, represents the word of God, and then the soils, which are representative of the hearts and how the human heart receives the word of God. And these illustrations were very common in that century. First of all, we find the example of the hard soil. Think about a rocky path. Think about some portion of ground that has been really compacted. It's very tight. It's very crusty. It's very hard. There's no way that anything can penetrate. In fact, when it rains on that particular portion of ground, the water runs off relatively quickly. Well, the illustration that Jesus pulls in is actually one that we looked at a couple of weeks ago when Jesus and his disciples were walking through the grain field and plucking grain on the Sabbath. As I shared in that story, the right-of-way, the path that was perfectly acceptable to travel, was located in between rows of grain, and so they were not trespassing. And so that would have been the kind of ground, the one where feet had trod so much, it had tightened up the soil, it had packed it down. And so the soil basically did not accept the seed. The seed stayed up at the surface level. That's how it is with the person who simply will not hear, who simply will not be receptive to the things of God's kingdom. They're completely closed off. They've hardened themselves because of their apathy, their indifference, because of certain life experiences where they just don't perceive a need for God. They view God as being unfair, or perhaps they view God as being non-existent. It's that hardened heart, that shell, that crust. It's hard to break open, and so when the Word of God comes, it's like it arrives and it bounces back off. I like the way this parable concludes because it reminds me of some words very similar to what Jesus told over in the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember the story of the wise and foolish builders, the person who does this, who really listens and takes hold of the teachings of God's kingdom is like the wise man with a good foundation, whereas the foolish person is the one who ignores what the kingdom of God stands for, ignores the teachings of Jesus, and is trying to build life with inferior materials. You find that hearing is a key element to what Jesus talks about a lot in the Gospel of Matthew. And so we have almost verbatim here, let the one who has ears, let the one who is open and receptive hear, but for the person who's hard-hearted, they want nothing to do whatsoever. It doesn't mean that at some point down the line something may crack open their heart and soften them and make them available to hear from God, but for the time being, they are completely closed off. 
Then you have the rocky soil. I know a lot of times when I heard this parable growing up, I thought about a, a field that was filled with stones, and you can go to certain parts of the country. Certain farmers will have something that's called a, a rock picker that can go through and pick up larger rocks from amongst the soil. But it's not exactly what Jesus was referring to in that day and time. He was referring to a very thin layer of topsoil that had a crust, if you will, of limestone just below the surface. To the naked eye, the surface looked pretty good. Now, I'm certain if you walked on it enough, you might feel the, the hardness beneath the layers just a little bit, but at least it looked like acceptable soil that could receive something. But the problem there is the seeds could take root. They were able to grow quickly, and that's something that a farmer really wants to see, especially this time of the year as I look at corn shooting up through the dirt. The farmer, soon after those seeds are planted, if the conditions are right, wants to see some kind of growth. And so here it can be encouraging to look at that stony, that rocky soil and think, wow, the plants are starting off good. But the reality of the matter is there's no real root structure. If the roots try to press down, they hit that hard limestone crust and there's no penetration. And without a good root structure, there's no way that a plant can grow and thrive and be healthy in the fullest understanding. For Jesus in this parable, he was looking at how people sometimes are very enthusiastic about their faith. We can probably think of times in our lives, maybe early in our Christian walk, or maybe when we consider the examples of other people we've known, or maybe we can just make up a hypothetical situation where a person has accepted Christ, it's the best thing in his or her world. That is the only thing that matters. They are pepped up. They are on cloud 10 when it comes to Jesus. And while it seems to be that they're on fire for the Lord, it seems that they're off to a great start, it doesn't last. It's like being shot out of a cannon, so to speak, but then given time and circumstances, that momentum begins to slow down. And so it is for the person who gets a good start in the faith. If he or she doesn't have a good root structure that comes through discipleship, which is Bible study, worship, prayer, fellowship with other believers, if he or she does not invest something in his or her faith journey, it's going to start, but then it's not going to amount to anything. In fact, I've used this illustration before, and you've probably heard it said, that starting in life is one thing. It's commendable to start anything, but to finish is far better. To see th something through to completion. It's one thing to have good ideas, but then another thing to have the follow-through. And the same Jesus points out here when it comes to matters of faith. When we first accept Christ, it's good to us. We love the Lord. We're excited about what God is changing in our lives. But if something doesn't change on the inside, if we're not nurturing that relationship, then basically it's going to shrivel up and die in no time. And then there's the weedy soil. The weedy soil would have looked very similar to the stony soil. It could have even looked like the good soil, if you will. 
But when you look at the illustration of the weedy soil, we find that there was much more at work, a lot of things at work beneath the surface, things that the farmer could not see, just as he couldn't see the, the hardened limestone shelf of that stony soil, the same could be said for the weeds. In the weedy soil, Jesus uses the example of things in life that consume us, that distract us, that get us off of that path that maybe we started on very faithfully. The weeds, even though they could be tilled under, were still there. And unless the weeds were really controlled, they were going to continue to come back up at the same time as the seed and create a serious complication for the growth of the plant. And the same can be said when we look at our faith journey. Right now, we may look at the surface of another Christian, or we may think about our own lives as, okay, I've accepted Christ in here. I'm being receptive to the Word of God. But there's stuff in my life that's not exactly been dealt with. That there's things in my life that have not been weeded out, if you will. And so as long as we keep that, that junk, if you will, those weeds on the inside, it's going to be hard for the Word of God to take root and for us to produce the fruit that is becoming of God's kingdom. It's something that God has to deal with below the surface. We can't simply hide things in our lives. We can't simply pack things away in our lives and assume, well, I'm just going to take my life as it is and add a little bit of God to it, and that's going to be sufficient. Jesus says it's simply not going to work because a time is going to come when those weeds, when they bear their ugly faces once again. And the same thing can also be said about the cares of life because sometimes we have good intentions in our faith. We start off walking with God and it's pretty important to us to be a part of church, Sunday school, Bible study, service opportunities. But then when a certain time of the year comes along and our hobbies begin to kick start or things become a little challenging at home, our children or grandchildren are busy with this or that function, we become sidetracked, we lose focus, and so all of the attachments, if you will, of life receive more time and effort than the good seed of God's Word. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy life, be with family, do things that are important to us, but it's also a matter of priorities and perspective. The final soil was the very best soil, that good soil which was rich and full, filled with nourishing nutrients, void of any kind of contaminants, and it would have been ideal. It would have received the seed very well, and it would have been cultivated in such a way that good roots could go down, and as a result of that, produce a bumper crop. And it's interesting that you look at those examples of Jesus here when he talks about the 30, the 60, and the 100-fold. 100-fold would have been an astonishingly fruitful crop. And we know in this story that it's not about grain. It's not about producing literal apples and oranges. We know that it's about the fruit of the kingdom. And so as we allow God's word to take root in our lives, our lives begin to produce those things which look like Jesus Christ. We become more loving toward our neighbor. We become more sensitive to the concerns of other people. 
We begin to enjoy our time of fellowship with sisters and brothers in the faith. We become passionate about reaching the world with the gospel. So many things begin to change. It's not that you become a Christian and God's going to give you all of the money and all of the health that you've ever wanted, but we find that those fruits are born in so many different ways. There's no way that we can really put a limitation on what God can do as we take his word seriously. So why did Jesus use parables exactly? We find in verse 10 through 17 and then a couple of verses later on in the chapter a little illustration as to why why parables? Why didn't Jesus just simply come out and say, well, if you want to be a part of God's kingdom, then you need to, to listen to the things I teach and do some good stuff, and that's the gist of life. We find that Jesus used parables because of the history of God's people, and that's one of the big things that he emphasizes between verses 10 and 17. The Word of God says, Then the disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to those who have, more will be given, and to those who have an abundance from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken." The reason I speak to them in parables is that seeing they do not perceive and hearing they do not listen, nor do they understand, with them is indeed fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, found in the 42nd chapter of Isaiah. You will indeed listen, but never understand. You will indeed look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes so that they might not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and understand with their hearts in turn. And I would heal them, of course, if they would make those changes. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people have longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And then verses 34 and 35, Jesus told the crowds all of these things in parables. Without a parable, he told them nothing. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth and speak in parables. I will proclaim what has been hidden from the foundation of the world. My parables. Was Jesus trying to trick the people? Was he trying to confuse them? Was he trying to become a stumbling block to them? I don't believe so. I don't believe Jesus would do that at all because it was his intention, his purpose coming in to human flesh to reveal to us who God is and how God relates to God's creation. But at the same time, I think Jesus wanted people to realize that the things of God's kingdom were serious business. They were not something to be tossed about, to be put on the coffee table, so to speak, to collect dust. To be a part of God's kingdom is going to be challenging. 
It's going to require some time and some effort. It's going to require investment on our part to become the people that God wants for us to be. There were some people in that time who were eager for God to do something magnificent in their lives. There were some people who were receptive to the, the arrival of the Messiah. There were those who viewed Jesus as being the fulfillment of God's promises, but then again, there were others who tried to cast it aside, tried to ignore God in the flesh of Jesus. One of the statements that Jesus makes early in that section between verses 10 and 17 is the illustration of the mysteries of the kingdom. When we hear that word mystery, we think about some of the movies that we enjoy on television, those shows that, and movies that have suspense, that keep us on edge, that keep us trying to figure out who did something and how everything unfolded. But that's not how God's kingdom really works. God's kingdom is not suspicious. It doesn't try to do anything underhanded. It's not something for us necessarily to, to figure out like a good mystery movie. But it does tell us of the secrets of God's kingdom, the things that are there that not just any and everyone can see. It doesn't mean that God is purposely concealing those things from people, but it means that we have to have the eyes, the heart, the mind that is willing to see and try to understand the things of God because we can't simply come to Scripture, for example, and read Scripture and put it down, slide it to the side, and that's all we're going to do. And a lot of people say, well, I've tried reading the Bible and it's just it's hard to read or I, I read a passage, it didn't say anything to me. That's because if we're trying to read Scripture like we would read Sports Illustrated or the local newspaper, then we're going to miss the point. Scripture is a very different document. It's an ancient document that is theological in nature in that it reveals God's self to us. And so for people who are apathetic and indifferent to the things of God's kingdom, for them to read the passages that we read, for them to hear us discuss things that are essential to us in our Christian faith, it's, it's going to be like speaking Greek to those individuals because one, they don't want to hear it, or either they're just not in that place where they're quite ready. Maybe they're in the very beginnings, they're, they're interested a little bit in faith, but until they really get into the process, there's a lot that they haven't learned. There's a lot that they have to grow in. And the same can be said for all of us. If we think back to the early times in our faith journey, did we have all of the answers? No. Do we have all of the answers today after years and years of practicing our faith? No, not necessarily. As long as we're on this side of heaven, we don't have everything figured out in the faith. And so it continues to be something that God reveals to us. And it's something that we have to tell God, look, show me, show me your will for my life. Show me your purpose. Show me how this scripture relates to my situation. It's about revelation, and I talked about revelation a few weeks ago, how we have that natural revelation when we look at the created order, we can tell there is a God. When we look at Jesus, we see a little bit of how God relates to us. 
And when we come to Scripture with eyes to see and a willingness for God to illumine the pages to us, we discover the depths that a lot of people choose to ignore. When you look at these texts, for example, the prophetic words that Jesus used to illustrate his point, it really called attention to that time in the history of God's people just prior to the exile when over and over and over again God had tried to get their attention. God had tried to lure them back in, but because of the cares of the world around them, because of the cultural and religious influences of other societies, they turned their back, if you will, on their first love. They ignored, they rejected, they became very much unfaithful to the relationship that they were to have with their true spouse, their true husband, God. And that's one of the images that's portrayed over and over again in the major prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and the same thing can be said in the minor prophets, especially in the book of Hosea. There were times when God's people wanted to be faithful. They wanted God's love and protection for God to take care of their needs. But then just as quickly, they could turn their back on God and follow some other detour, some other path that led them astray in their relationship with God. And so here we find that Jesus spoke in parables, again, not to trip anybody up, but he had to speak in a way that people could, could get it, if you will. How many times have we had someone to tell us something, maybe in person or over the telephone, but then we just still didn't grasp it? But if that person said, here, let me show you, and sits down with a piece of paper and begins to draw out whatever that concept may be, then it registers with us. And so if we look at the parables with a positive light, it wasn't to keep things away from certain people. It was a way to clarify the things of God's kingdom to certain people because they wouldn't have understood and appreciated otherwise. It was like giving them a written set of instructions. It was like giving them a picture, if you will, a hands-on project in how the kingdom of God unfolds. As Jesus moves along, we find that there's another illustration of the ground, the soil. But this time the focus is not so much on the ground and how it produces or fails to produce. It's about what grows up together. And in verses 24 through 30, and then in 36 through 43, we find the parable of the wheat and the tares, as some people call it, the wheat and the weeds, and also the explanation that Jesus offered for both of those parables. He put before them another parable, verse 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, 
what then shall we do? Shall we go and gather them? But he said, no. For in gathering the weeds, you will uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them continue to grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat into my barn. In verse 36, then he left the crowd and went into the house, and his disciples approached him, saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, referring to himself. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who, who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and evildoers, and they will be thrown into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. And once again we hear those words, let anyone with ears listen. The farmer sowed good seed. And when you think about what God did in the very beginning when he created all things at the end of each day of creation, he pronounced those things good. God had the very best of intentions and continues to have the very best of intentions for his created order. But unfortunately, over time, evil has crept in. And that evil has distorted a lot of the things around us, things as we looked at a couple of chapters ago that ordinarily we would call bad have come to be said to be good and vice versa. But here we find that Jesus is using an illustration of the present situation and the long-term implications, the fact that there are going to be healthy plants that are producing good grain, but then at the same time, there are going to be some deceptive plants that may look very close to the wheat, but then the substance thereof is really nothing at all. There was a common practice, especially in Jesus' day and time, to mistake weeds, or as was known then, the tares, again, also known as the bearded darnel, with the average stalk of wheat. And to compare wheat, when you look at your handout, you'll find some similarity between the golden color of the wheat that's there on the left of that picture and then a slightly different color of the bearded darnel over to the right in that picture. Two things that look the same early on in their growth, but then with time, it became evident which one was which. The difference between those two, the wheat was really good. The wheat was productive, it served a function, it made good meal, but then the bearded darnel, the tares, the weeds basically were not of any value whatsoever. They had a little bit of a bitter taste. They could cause sickness 
And on top of that, they also had a hallucinogen in them that could cause some other effects. So there were a lot of things about the bearded Darnell that while it looks just like the wheat for the most part, that in reality it's not the true wheat. How in the world does wheat and weeds relate to our world today? How does that parable connect with us? It can be a little bit confusing, but when you think about it, it reminds us of the different kinds of people in the world today and the fact that we can all look very similar on the surface. Now, none of us are identical, don't get me wrong, but when it comes to people, we can look a certain part on the surface. We can, for example, look the part of a Christian. We may be well-spoken, well-dressed. We may be religious as far as being able to check off the boxes of our various duties. And then there can be those people who may not really have it all together. They may not be eloquent when they speak. They may not be the best-dressed people. But when it comes to faith, they truly understand that faith is more than checking off those boxes. As we've heard it said in life, appearances can be deceptive. And in this life, there are those people who want to play the role of Christian. There are those who want to go through the motions and say, well, I go to church, I give my money, I this, I that, I'm not a terrible person. But then at the end of days, they are just as separated from God as anything. It's important to realize the substance. And the thing is, we have to be careful because we can't see and perceive everything that God can. And that's one of the key words in this parable is the fact that it's going to be at the end of time when God truly sees things as they are. Jesus in this parable points out that we cannot make those judgment calls because if we do, we may do something devastating to the fellowship of the body of Christ. But in due time, whenever that day comes, there will be a moment of accountability where everyone stands before God and God will truly be able to point out each individual as he or she really, truly was in this life. Because, again, the appearances can be one thing, but the heart is what God truly considers. The grain, it says, will be saved. It will be put away in barns for storage. It will prove to be valuable to the farmer. But then there's the tares, the weeds, the bearded darnels, that the only thing they're good for other than making you sick is to be thrown over there into the fire, to keep a fire burning. It's that illustration of judgment that's common throughout the Gospels of fire and weeping and gnashing. Judgment, while some people may want to play around with judgment and say, oh, well, that's, that's just an old wise tale. There's nothing going to happen to me. I don't believe that God's too loving to really judge me. But here Jesus points out the reality that even though we don't know when it's going to be, there will be a time of reckoning with God and it will be a serious time. It will not be any fooling around and playing games. Going back to verse 31 through 33, we hear two short parables 
one of the mustard seed and one of the yeast. It says here that he put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds. But when it has grown, it is the greatest of the shrubs, and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. These are two subtle illustrations to remind us, one, of how faith functions. You find that there's a common phrase that comes up in Matthew's gospel and it's that of little faith. The disciples seem to be onto something. They seem to be growing. They seem to be learning in their faith. But then just as quickly, they'll do something foolish. They'll doubt Christ. And Christ will come back and say, well, why did you doubt, oh, you little of faith? In life, a little faith is a starting point for something. We may not always have this magnificent faith, especially during difficult times, but a little bit of faith is certainly better than none. But more than talking about how a little bit of faith makes a difference, here in these two parables we find that the kingdom of God unfolds in subtle ways, ways that we can't even see with the naked eye, but then again with time, it becomes very obvious the effects of God's kingdom. That mustard seed may be teeny tiny, and we may put it in the ground. We may not observe that seed fully as it is growing, but we know that given the right conditions, the sunlight, the rains, and so forth, that that little teeny tiny seed is going to grow. We don't get down on our hands and knees and stare at the soil. We don't get down there and, and talk over it as if we're going to force the seed to grow. We don't often understand it, but we put the seed in the ground and we trust that it's going to grow. And given time, it pops up through the soil and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it produces something that's really, really good, very, very favorable. The same illustration can be said of the yeast, and we know that we don't see yeast in bread, but when you add yeast to the flour and the interaction begins to take place, that chemical reaction, if you will, as the leavening takes place within the flour, we don't see it, but we can observe the overall effects. A mustard seed may be small, yeast may be very minuscule compared to the amount of flour used in making bread, but those two small things remind us of how God's kingdom begins to unfold and bloom in the world around us. Two small, subtle examples, but yet powerful illustrations that it's not in the big things that we often dwell upon, but even in the smallest of things that God can continue to do his work. The chapter closes off with another little run of three different parables that are related not just to the smallness and the subtle ways that God's kingdom begins to unfold, 
But they speak of the tremendous value and the work, the effort that goes into discovering the reality of God's kingdom. In verse 44, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like the treasure that's hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, and on finding the one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore. They sat down and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them out into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Kind of starting with the parable of the net and working backwards. The net is very similar to the parable of the wheat and the tares. The fact that we are in this life, we are in this world, we're reaching out to all kinds of people. There are all kinds of people making up our local congregations. And we know that that time comes, even while, uh, even while appearances can be somewhat deceptive, that there will be that moment of judgment that comes. But at the same time, we know that we have a great calling to go out into the world to all people. We can't be selective and say, well, I'm going to select this person and this person. I'm going to go fishing and, and choose this fish or that fish before they bite my line. But we can't do those kind of things. Our responsibility is to be people who carry that net out into the world. And as we're faithful to God, we collect fish. We collect people and we don't know how God will work in the lives of those people. All we know is that we have to be faithful. And faithfulness is the other thing that's captured in the two parables of the field and also of the pearl. In the example of the treasure hidden in the field, it kind of came upon that gentleman by accident. He was out working the field. He wasn't necessarily on a treasure hunt, and he came upon it. And he got rid of everything that he had. He went and bought that field. He was overwhelmed with joy. And then in the illustration of the kingdom of heaven being like a pearl, it's like someone who's a fine collector of things and they search high and low trying to find that rare, unusual, beautiful something. And the response was the same. Once that gentleman found that pearl, he got rid of everything so that he could buy that pearl, and there was great rejoicing for him. It shows us that sometimes God's kingdom shows up when we're looking. When we're truly searching, as was the merchant in the case of the pearl. But then sometimes God's kingdom comes upon us in ways that we can't expect, in ways that we may not have even been searching for. And that was the case with the man and the treasure in the field. We do our ordinary, everyday tasks, trying to live as faithfully as we can, and it's in the midst of all of that that we discover the truth of God's power and God's presence in our world. The chapter closes out at 51 through 58 with these words. Have you understood all of this? They answered, yes, referring to the disciples. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven... 
is like a master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he left that place. He then came to his hometown and began to teach the people in their synagogues so that they were astounded and said, Where does this man get this wisdom and these deeds of power? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas among us? And are not his sisters here with us? Where did this man get all of this? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor except in their own country and in their own house. And he did not do many deeds of power there because of their unbelief. Going back to the first portion of that section, Jesus points out the reality of what took place when he came into the world The disciples had been raised in the Jewish faith. They knew the traditions, the law, the covenant, the ins and outs of what it meant to be Jewish. And when God sent Jesus, Jesus didn't throw things out the window. He didn't abolish everything. He began to clarify. He began to put a new spin on what God had already done. And so that's kind of an illustration there of old treasures. There's still some some old things in the lives of the disciples that they had, had, had experienced as a result of being devout Jews. But then through their relationship with Jesus, they had discovered new things that were just as valuable. Jesus didn't throw out, say, out with the old and in with the new, but it was a a both and. He took what the disciples knew and understood and he built upon that. And then what a tragic story to conclude the chapter. The fact that we're so accustomed in the chapters prior to this to Jesus going to this place or that place and being able to heal people, people being wowed by his teaching, but now he's rejected by his very own family. It's kind of like going back, I guess, to your home church that you grew up in and the people remember you when you were just knee-high to a grasshopper running around in the nursery and in the children's programs. And so later on, it's hard for them to really see you as the exact same person. Here, we find that they resented Jesus because they thought of him as that little boy that should be running around Nazareth. His daddy was a good carpenter. His mom was a fine person. His siblings... He's just an ordinary person, so how does this ordinary man do such extraordinary things? And it was this ridicule, this lack of faith in his own home community that hindered Jesus from doing anything, anything at all. And this is one of the sad stories of the Gospels. You find, obviously, the story of the rich young ruler walking away sorrowed from Jesus, and I think this one certainly measures up to that one, the fact that he could not do deeds of power there because of their unbelief. My sisters and brothers, it's been good to be with you on this Wednesday. I hope that you've been blessed by our discussion of these parables in Matthew chapter 13 and that you'll be able to have a little bit deeper understanding and a greater appreciation for God's Word as we seek to apply these principles and these parables to our day-to-day living. Would you bow with me as we're closed in prayer?
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of this day, this time to spend together in your word. Lord, these parables are so vitally important to our understanding of the kingdom of God and how it unfolds in our midst. Lord, it happens in big ways and small ways, ways when we're searching and ways when we're not even expecting. Lord, continue to be with us as we journey closer to you, as we grow deeper in our faith, as we seek to apply your word to our day-to-day living. Be with all of my sisters and brothers, the needs that are close to their hearts and minds, whatever they may be, we know that your grace is always more than sufficient. In Jesus' name, amen. May the peace of Christ go with you this evening and in the days to come.